Good morning. It's good to see so many beautiful people. And what a beautiful church. Don't you just want to come and worship here on Sabbath morning? Just to be here for a while is such a privilege, huh? A gorgeous view, a fountain that actually works. Somebody must be maintaining this place. Looks great. Wow. Um, it's, just, it's just really nice to be with you. You are God's children. And it is such an honor to be with you. I want to kneel with you. I'll kneel. You can remain seated if you'd like for just a moment to, again, ask for God's special blessing. Dear Father in heaven, you are everything to us. And in our Savior Jesus, you have shown us yourself. These people are so important to you, Lord. I just plead with you that each one will hear what he or she needs to hear today. A word directly from your heart to to theirs, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if we can get the picture in the front. We have the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is more than theology. Any of you traveled in Europe? All right. You see gorgeous churches all over Europe. I'm kind of a churchologist. (laughs) And I love looking at church architecture. And wow, the churches in Europe are magnificent. But truthfully, most of them are empty. On Sunday morning, a handful of people may show up. Or the church may have already been converted to a bakery or a community center. Because... So few people are worshiping. What happened to Christianity in Europe? The Reformation was born in Europe. Christianity flourished in Europe. The missionaries traveled from Europe all over the world. Our country was populated by believers from Europe. What happened to Europe? Do you know Europe has seminaries where the greatest theological minds in the world, Christian theological minds in the world, biblical scholars par excellence, do not believe in God. What happened to Europe? I think I know what happened to Europe. Now, I am certain that I, for many of you, I won't be teaching you anything you don't already know today. For a few, maybe, I hope, I hope I can help you, I hope I can share with you something that you don't already know. But even if you already know what I'm going to say today, there's always a new angle, isn't there? There's always a new angle from a new personality and a new perspective. For all eternity, each of us is going to have a testimony to give that is going to be needed and new and fresh for someone. And uh, I'm just so thankful to be able to share What I think happened to Europe is what could happen in the United States and is happening in many of our larger cities already. Unfortunately, it's also what is happening to some extent in some of our Christian homes. Some of our young people are walking away, turning their backs. Now, you could say they're turning their backs on God, But that is not true. They're turning their backs on a dry, theological, self-willed religion 
that claims to talk about God. They're not turning their backs on God. Many of them, if they ever could see God, ever could really get a glimpse of who he really is, would in fact make a different decision and would stay with him. Jesus is more than theology. And that is what I have been trying to learn all my life. This is what John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Does that sound like just theology to you? And yet we can theologize that. We can turn that into a doctrine. We can turn that into a dogma. You all know it already. I'm the way, the life, and the truth. Is that a daily meaningful thing for you? No one can come to the Father except through me. I see this on billboards, and we use it like a slap in the face for the Muslims and for the Buddhists. So sorry, you guys are all going to hell because nobody can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ, and you don't believe in him. And that's not the importance of the scripture at all. It's so much more than theology. This is talking about an experience. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. See, the Jews thought they did know the father, didn't they? They thought they did. They were sure they knew who the father was. And they were teaching their children a religion which could only lead them to eternal damnation. Jesus said, if you knew me, if you knew me, now you actually really would know the Father. You'd know who He is. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him because, I, because you've seen me. Because here I am. You know that chapter. You know that's the chapter where Jesus is told, you know, show us the Father. If we could see the Father, then our faith would be strong. We would really believe then. We wouldn't have any trouble with our faith if we could just see the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you such a long time? Was Jesus saying he was the Father? He did actually go ahead and kind of say that there. But he wasn't meaning that there's only one person in the Godhead. He was meaning that my character and the Father's are identical. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he says, now you have seen him. Look, you're Christians. Some of you have grown up in this faith. Some of you are converts. Some of you have accepted Christ later in life. Some of you as children. It is our privilege to really know about God. And yet, I'm I'm going to say, I think we have had a weakness as Seventh-day Adventists. We have have emphasized the Old Testament. I hope none of you will decide to call me a heretic here. Is the Old Testament important? Absolutely. But we've emphasized the Old Testament. Let me ask you another question. Now I'll test your orthodoxy. Does the Old Testament give a clear view of God the Father or even of the character of God the Trinity? Only in a very few places. Most of the Old Testament is woefully misunderstanding God's character. And if you base your religion too much on the Old Testament and not enough on the Gospel, which is the life of Jesus Christ, you will have a skewed version of who God is. This is exactly what the Jews did. Exactly what the Jews did. They based their understanding of God entirely on the Old Testament. Now, granted, they missed the scriptures which could have shown them the whole truth about God, and they emphasized the other ones instead. 
But nevertheless, the Jewish religion ended up being a lot like what we see in modern Islam today. A lot like that. It was about submission and surrender to a God who is almighty and all-powerful and not very understanding. And Jesus said, you know, the, the, the harlots and the publicans are going to go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. And he was talking there to the most religious people in the world. The most committed people. The most all-in, life-given-entirely-to-the-religion people that existed in the world at that time. I mean, these people were really, really, you know, followers of Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever name you want to give him from that Old Testament tetragrammaton. Looks as if we're having a little bit of a crisis here. So I don't want you all to be distracted and miss an important point. We'll kind of wait until this gets dealt with. All right, I realize some are going to be supporting him now. That's perfectly normal. Ah, Thank you so much for your prayers. Looks like he's doing better, doesn't it? I hope we can take that as a good sign. He'll completely recover. Any of you spent any time in the hospital recently? Try not to. (laughs) I'm a chaplain now. You know, I did pastoral ministry for 40 years. And I work as a chaplain now. And I, you know why I'm in chaplaincy? For me, I have learned so much in chaplaincy that I didn't learn as a pastor. One of the things I've learned is that God is working in every single life. Do you believe that? I can see it there when I'm visiting people in their, in their, in their sick bed in the, in the hospital room. I can see that God is working in their lives. It's not just muttering words, you know. And, and, and when I ask them if they believe in God, wow, is it interesting the responses I get. Just amazing. And, you know, if somebody will say, I, I think so. <laughs> I think that is a wonderful opportunity to say, you do. And let's see if we can strengthen that faith. I'm going to pray that this hospital experience you're going through here will end up drawing you nearer to God and giving you more faith than you had when you came in. Because God is with you and he, he can work. You know, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, don't they? He can work through this challenge and trial to bring you into a wonderful place with him. So I, have, I just really enjoy that. Well, I don't have a lot of scriptures in my sermon today, but this certainly is a pivotal one. Because as you can see, I took my title from it. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. How do we know God? Why does he say from now on? Because Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Now we can really know God. The Apostle Paul says God was in Christ. Remember that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Why would we need to be reconciled? What happens before people get reconciled? They become enemies, don't they? They, 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 they have misunderstanding between them. And now Jesus has come to give us the understanding of God that we really needed. Paul also says in Hebrews, if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, I happen to, that he first sent the, the, the prophets, the, the uh, patriarchs, the, the other representatives. But in these last days, Paul says, he sent his only son, his own son now, to tell us the truth about himself. So, yes, they could have picked up the right view. A few did in the Old Testament times, a very few, but a few did. 
They could have picked up the right view from the Old Testament. But it's so much easier when you've got Jesus to look at. Just look at the life of Jesus. Friends, look at the life of Jesus. I was raised in this church, going to Christian schools. I knew every story of the life of Jesus. But do you know what I had never done? I had never said, in my understanding and in my heart, that's God. Right there. What you see Jesus doing right there, that's God. That's the way God behaves. The way you see Jesus talking to those people, that's God. That's the way God talks. The way you see Jesus putting up with Judas for three years and not even letting on what he knew about Judas' ultimate outcome or or his insincerity as as a disciple and just treating Judas as well as all the others and pouring out his love on him. Guess what? That's God. That's God right there. Kneeling down and washing people's feet, that's God. Right there. Making friends of poor people, that's God. Telling the truth to proud people who thought that they were saved but weren't, that's God. But even to them, he said it as gently as possible because Jesus wanted everybody in his kingdom. Are you with me? That's God. So we have seen him now. Now we have seen him. People say, I'm confused about God. You don't have to be confused. Read the Gospel of Mark again. Read the Gospel of Luke again. You don't have to be confused about God. This is the truth about God. This is not only the truth about God. This is the whole truth. Jesus says, I am the way. The way where? You read the context of of John 14. I am the way to the Father. That's what I am. I'm the way to the Father. I'm also the truth. What truth? I'm the truth about the Father. And I'm also the life. What life are you, Jesus? I'm God's life. I'm the Father's life. Come down to you to show you everything that you need to know about God. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Let's just look at those a little bit, a little bit more deeply. Jesus is everything to us. Jesus is the way. He is the road. The word way can also be another way of saying road, can't it? I even used to live, I used to go to school on a road called Winding Way. Anybody know where that is? Well, that's in Sacramento, California. That's where our academy is in Sacramento, California. It's on Winding Way, Winding Road. He is the road and he is the vehicle. Got that? He's the road and he's the car because he is the way in totality. We travel on Him and in Him. This is weird language, isn't it? Remember what Jesus said about uh, Jacob's vision of the angels going up and down the ladder? Who did Jesus say the ladder was? Himself. Himself. So Jesus is the road and He's also the vehicle. We travel on Him and we travel in Him and faith entirely, get the word entirely please, depends on Him. Do you depend on your car? In fact, it's alarming how much you depend on your car, isn't it? If your car doesn't function, what happens to you? You can't get there until somebody comes along with another car. There is no other car but Jesus Christ, my friends. There's no other bus. There's no other plane. There's no other transportation. There's no other spaceship. He's it. Now, is that a threat? I'm not saying that to you to be a threat. I'm saying that to you so that you don't waste time looking for anything else. Okay? Don't waste time. He's it. 
We have, we, we depend on him entirely. I depend on my car. My car, you know, I, I think all these cars, don't you think it's kind of a miracle? It, it comes to me at least once a week. I'm on the freeway. I'm on the freeway and I'm rushing and all these cars and all these great big trucks are coming by and all these things. And I'm thinking, how on earth does this not turn into a giant catastrophe? Once in a while it does. But not very often considering how many millions of people are going back, whizzing past each other all the time, day after day after day, out here on 101. Don't you think that sometimes when you're out there? How does this keep, how do we keep doing this day after day after day with so few fatalities? Jesus is totally reliable. You put your life in the hands of your car. Let me suggest that you put your eternal life in the hands of Jesus Christ. Now, you said I already did that. I, I'm a Christian. What do you think I did when I was baptized? Wait a minute, wait a minute. We tend, I know because I did this for years as a pastor, we tend to depend partly on Jesus and partly on ourselves. That is what we tend to do. You know why we tend to do that? It's not just because we're so perverse. It's because we have a Satan out there who doesn't want us to make it to heaven. And he's constantly urging us to try to put some of the confidence or some of the efforts on ourselves. We have a tendency to think that salvation is partly grace and partly determination, good choices, exercise of the will. I'm not here to tell you there's no exercise of the will, but in a minute you'll understand what I mean. And it's not the way we use it, usually. This is a radical change for some of us. I pray, God, you are already ahead of me. I pray, God, you already understood and that you are a happy, rejoicing Christian because you are secure in this transportation system we call Jesus, who is the way to heaven. And you're not relying on anything you can provide to the transportation to heaven. Jesus is the truth. He said, I'm the truth. What truth is he? His life is the full revelation of all truth. Embracing him is embracing the truth. We have loved truth. We Seventh-day Adventists, we love truth. In fact, sometimes we even refer to our religion as the truth, don't we? Have you ever asked anybody, how long have you been in the truth? <laughs> you know what? That's a misnomer. I'm sorry. Being a Seventh-day Adventist, not being in the truth. Could be, but not necessarily. Being in Jesus Christ is being in the truth, friends. We have loved truth. Many truths we have loved. We've loved the Sabbath truth. We've loved conditionalism. Some of you are going to say, what? Conditionalism? What's that? That means we're not automatically immortal. Hence, hellfire doesn't burn forever. We're only immortal if God makes us immortal. Okay, that's conditionalism. We've loved the second coming truth. There are many truths, but there's only one unifying, all uniting truth. Are you with me on this so far? This is as theological as I'm going to get today. I want you to know that. This sermon is not primarily theological. But I I want to give the underpinning here. So, every truth is about Jesus, and Jesus is about the Father. And if that truth isn't about Jesus, then it's not really truth. What about the health message? Is that about Jesus? It better be. It better be about loving Jesus and about Jesus, the maker of my body, and about the relationship I want to have with him. It better be about that. It better not be about some independent thing of increasing my longevity. Then it's no longer really truth. Because all truth is is in Christ, or it's not truth at all. All right? Finally, Jesus said that he is the life. His life is the only life there is. Who, Who made the human race? Jesus. 
Who supplies your every heartbeat? Jesus. If we don't love Jesus, we don't love life. You know, Solomon put it a little differently in the Proverbs. He says, those who hate me, he was speaking of Jesus, those who hate me love death. Jesus is the only life there is. Entering his life and receiving his life is when living begins. Until then, we haven't really started. Loving his life and holding on to it is your only really important possession. As your only really important possession is faith. That's what faith is. We love his life. We cling to his life. It's our only really important possession. It's the one thing we would not dare get rid of. So it's not just our faith. You know, I know people who gave up being Adventists a long time ago, but they're still vegetarians, God bless them. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) They're clinging to some pieces of what this thing is. This faith, this thing is not vegetarianism. This thing is not Sabbath worship. This thing is not tithes and offerings. Folks, this thing is Jesus Christ. And all that stuff is a huge blessing Jesus gives us. We do not give it to him. Are you with me? Jesus gives us those blessings. We do not give them to him in some means of by which we're making an arrangement with him where he has to bless us. No, 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 no. He blesses us automatically just because he's our friend. Now, this picture, here's where I get off the theological side now. I like this picture. In fact, for a very long time, this was my favorite picture depicting how... I want to relate to Jesus. I want to be excited when I see Jesus. I want to live a life that praises Jesus. I want to look at Jesus and say, wow, you're beautiful, you're magnificent, I want to be like you. I want my whole life to just be a worship experience. I loved this picture because it just depicted the way I want to relate to Jesus. But you know what? I don't like it so much anymore. I have really looked at this picture again and I have said, you know what? This picture is partly what's wrong with the experience that many Christians are having. Where is Jesus in this picture? He's up there in the clouds somewhere. Where's the, where, where, where's Jesus' follower? Way down below somewhere. What's the follower having to do to worship Jesus? He's having to look up. And where is Jesus looking in this picture? Can you see Jesus' eyes? It's not quite as clear when it's blown up this big. Can you see Jesus' eyes in that picture? Where is he looking? He's looking over the man's head. That, I, 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 I'm honest with you folks. We choose visual imagery for our heads that reflects the truth of our actual feelings. And I realized years later that that picture was the truth of my feelings. Jesus wants me to worship him, but I'm not that important to him. He's got his eyes on millions of others, and he's not focusing on me because I'm just one of many. And this is kind of a one-way transaction. Jesus is waiting for me to acknowledge that he's my everything, that I love him, that I worship him, that I give him everything of my life and everything. He's waiting on me to do that for him. And that will seal our transaction of salvation somehow. See, this this picture's not bad because we do want to adore Jesus. It's just that I'm not sure this picture is possible. 
It certainly doesn't reflect the kind of relationship I want to have. Now let me show you another picture. What do you think about that picture? That picture may have imperfections I may discover in another 10 years. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, for right now, this is the picture that makes sense to me. Because this is what I see in the Gospels. When Jesus came down to earth, did he sit on a throne in the temple and wait for people to come and worship him? No. He walked with a dozen smelly fishermen all over that country. By the way, it wasn't just the guys. You do know that Jesus had female disciples, don't you? They're only spoken of in a few verses in the New Testament, but they followed him everywhere just like the male disciples did. He had, he had several of them, very, very faithful. In fact, they were, you know, let's be honest, you know, division of labor and all that. Jesus' female disciples were making sure lunch was ready. <laughs> they really were. They were making sure the clothes were washed. And not only that, Jesus' female disciples were richer than Jesus' male disciples, and so they were also bankrolling his travels. Bet you didn't know that. Yeah. And they were just as dedicated to Jesus as the male disciples were. In fact, shall we be perfectly honest? More so. You know who one of those was? The first person that saw Jesus after his resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. The others... Didn't have any faith yet, but she couldn't leave Jesus, his body. She had to be there early Sunday morning. She's out there, oh, weeping, weeping. She couldn't find his body. Where have you taken his body? She asked the person she thought was the gardener. And the gardener said, Mary, Mary. Oh, she'd been his disciple for several years. She knew his voice. As soon as she heard that voice, she knew, oh, this is Jesus. She jumps forward and grabs him. Oh, what a beautiful story, isn't it? Beautiful story. See, that, that is the kind of Jesus we actually, we actually have. And until we see that image in our mind, see, you know, psychologists talk about our self-talk. Do anything, any of you know about the self-talk that we have? You don't know about the self-talk? What do you hear your inner voice telling you about you? For years and years and years, if I actually thought about it, my inner voice was saying, you're a fool. What an idiot. You make more mistakes than anybody I know. Myself, that was my self-talk, you know. Why should anybody care about you? And it was always pointing out all my weaknesses. You're so proud. You're so lazy. You're so self-centered. And I thought that was Jesus' voice. That self-talk isn't Jesus. That's just your psychological self-talk based on your personal self-image. It's not the Holy Spirit talking to you, the voice of Jesus through the Spirit. No. You know how I know? Because how did Jesus talk to people when he was on earth? This is the truth about God. He doesn't talk to people like that. They brought him a woman taken into adultery. He says, I don't condemn you. Well, who's condemning her then? The other people were condemning her. She was condemning herself, but Jesus wasn't condemning her. He knew how she got that way. Why should he condemn her? He's there to save her, not condemn her. 
This, this picture, I want this to become, in your mind, if you feel it's okay, if the Holy Spirit will allow you to do this, I'd like this to become the picture you have when you think about Jesus and you. Where is he? Up in the clouds somewhere waiting for you to worship him? He's right with you. Now let me give you a scripture for it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Even if you're not entertaining Jesus at the moment, he's no further away from you than the front porch. (laughs) Are you with me? He will not leave you. He said, I will not leave you or forsake you. He said that. Do you believe him? I'm not up in heaven waiting for you to pray. I'm right next to you. Can't you feel my hand on your shoulder? I had to find this kind of Jesus before I could find hope of salvation. Why? Because I have a very high standard for what kind of people God wants us to be to go to heaven. And I could see that my trajectory (laughs) based upon the amount of years I had left in my life was not putting me at a totally vertical situation here. I wasn't, in other words, I wasn't going to make it. I wasn't overcoming fast enough. I had to find this Jesus who's in the walk with me and who already has worked out my salvation. Here's the truth about Jesus. Here's the truth about God the Father. We know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. Isn't it amazing? Friends, we have talked about God's power. And, you know, just tap into God's power. He'll give you victory. That is true, and yet it's a lie. I hate it when, when truths are wrapped up in lies and lies are wrapped up in truths. Jesus is not interested in giving you his power. He's interested in giving you himself. What is his power? It's his nature. And what is his nature? Love. How does Jesus heal people emotionally? What? Come on. Is there anything else that can heal people emotionally besides love? Is there? Can anything but love heal anybody emotionally? Where does our sinfulness come out of? It comes out of our emotions, doesn't it? So what's wrong with our... Does God want to take away our sins? Or does He want to heal us emotionally? If He does heal us emotionally, then what will happen to our sins? Well, they'll be gone anyway. God is love. When He chooses to identify Himself by one word... Imagine the master of the universe... Now that we've got Hubble and we've got all those pictures of all those other galaxies with trillions and trillions of suns and, and every one of them having a dozen planets or more like ours does and, 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 and there seems to be no end. We, we can't even see the end. And, and we say, well, how big is God anyway? He's so awesomely big and yet he can, he can identify himself with one word. One word. Love. See, if you're having a hard time with that, I want you to know I can identify with you. I resented the love preachers. I said, this isn't Adventism. 
you boil this thing down way too simple. You're going to cause people to just live risque and, and lawless lives and think they're saved because love, 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 love. And I really resented them. For years I resented them. And then finally the Lord taught me this verse. He said, wait a minute. There may be something wrong the way some people are presenting God's love, but I'll tell you what, presenting God's love is not the wrong thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the only thing to do in the face of how sick our world is today and how sick our own hearts are because there's no other cure. I could present the Sabbath to you, but if I don't teach you God's love, how on earth are you going to keep the Sabbath? And why would you keep the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath is not even about not doing this and not doing that and not doing the other thing. The Sabbath is about entering into a relationship with God, which you can't possibly do if you're not feeling His love. Are you with me? Sabbath keeping is a farce unless you are in love with God. We know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And he who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. So, he's not saying if you can just stay in love, you can stay in God. Sounds like he's saying that, but that's what the devil wants you to think. You can misinterpret Scripture to your own damnation. How many of you know that's true? No, he's saying that if you remain in God, you're remaining in love. That's the whole point. Not love everybody so you can remain in God. I actually interpreted it that way at one time. Uh, oh, 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 I see. Oh, oh boy. There's not ten commandments, there's eleven commandments. And the eleventh commandment is love everybody. And I've got to love everybody. That's even harder than keeping the others, isn't it? <laughs> There's so many people that are hard to love. Do you find that? I couldn't even love myself, first of all. I look in the mirror and go, yuck! And then the people around me, you know, oh my, they're all so flawed. They're not on my side. They're betraying me. They're saying bad things about me. I can't love them. I told my wife one time, I said, you know what? I really like all the people who like me. <laughs> I meant it. I knew it wasn't right, but I meant it. I didn't know how to love the other people. If we are wrapped up in the healing love of God, that's what this verse is saying, then we can love. Until that happens, we can't. We can't. We can do things that are in our best interest, maybe a little win-win too, maybe we can actually have a nice personality. Some people are born with great personalities, really. Some people are born, what you might say, just with an agreeable personality. They're people who don't like to stir. They like to get along. They smile a lot. They're easy to be with. And they're just that way by nature. They don't have to be Christians to be that way. And yet they make great Christians. We used to say, oh, that person would make a good Adventist. You know, they're already 90% here, you know. No, that person would make a terrible Adventist. They would be a, they would be a, a Pharisee and a hypocrite because they wouldn't know that being nice must depend entirely on grace. They would have done it since they were babies all by nature. You know who makes the best Adventists? The people who are so hopelessly tangled up in sin that they have to, reti- have to depend entirely on the grace of God. Every day, every moment, they, re- they, re- they depend on His love to keep them even decent people. They depend on His love to heal them from their, their awful, uh, perverted way of thinking and acting. 
It's the only thing. And so this abiding in his love, this, this is what does it. God is love. And the tragedy is that it's possible to live your whole life as a good Christian member of a church and not actually personalize that. By the way, you can always tell. You can always tell. You can always tell. Because people who haven't personalized that yet are not really happy people. Not only are they unhappy people, it doesn't come out all the time. They look happy most of the time, but if you really put them under a stress situation, their unhappiness comes out. And not only that, they work to make other people unhappy also. Tragically, there's far too many people like that in the church. Quite often, those are the people running the church because they're usually the most self-willed people who seem to have the best lifestyle and who seem to really have the most of God's blessings in their life. And so they often take over the churches and then you have people who don't know about God's love running the church, which really cripples the church. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. We haven't spent enough time thinking about this, have we? What does this say? We could write a hundred books about what this says. I just want to posit one thing to your mind that this says. Maybe you haven't thought about it. This says God, because this is, this is God the Father in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. This says God the Father values your happiness, your life, your salvation, your hope, your eternity. He values you more than he values himself. That is just outrageous. Is that outrageous to you? Why should he? He's the maker and master of the universe. I should be not important to him. I walk out of my back porch, and every once in a while, the ants have built a nest just off the edge of the cement. Do they do that by your place? And the ants are now making a stream across the porch. And I think to myself, this is my house, not yours. I'm much more important than you are. I am going to get some spray out, and I'm going to annihilate your house. And then this thought comes to my mind. Believe me, it doesn't stop me from getting rid of the ants, but this thought comes to my mind. Wait a minute. God had every right to have that reaction to me. Am I telling the truth? Every right. And yet, instead, this was his reaction to me. This. We have a policy at Adventist Health. Everybody has to be nice. All employees have to be nice. In fact, our motto in Adventist Health is living God's love. Every employee. How many of our employees do you think are Seventh-day Adventists? Less than 10%. But every employee has to agree to live God's love. It's the most amazing thing. Because then I get to stand up there and say, now folks, what did you just agree to do? Did you, do, did you agree to be nice to everybody by your own strength? No, you said you'd live God's love. Do you understand what that means? You've got to connect up with God or this isn't going to happen. You're going to be a, a good employee here at Adventist Health? You're going to connect with God or this isn't going to happen. You're going to fail the mission, the central mission of our whole organization. I tell him it's easy to connect up with God. You know, he's right there. If you, ha- if you haven't connected with him yet, then that means he's knocking on the door. In fact, right now, what you're listening to me, I'm part of the knocking. 
And he's saying, let me in. And he says, as soon as you open the door, I'll come in. Isn't that what the Bible says? Yeah? Yeah? It doesn't say, it doesn't say I'll put you on probation, and after five years and you've overcome all these wicked things in your life, then I'll come in. No, it says I'll come in right now. And the reason it doesn't say after you've put off all this, I used to think that's what conversion was. Conversion was you repent, you tell God all your sins, you give up all kinds of things, and then Jesus came, comes and takes a, a dwelling place in your heart. False! If he doesn't come into your heart right now, you won't give up anything. Nothing. Jesus loves us first, and then we begin to be better. Are you with me? He loves us first. That's what the gospel is. That's why everybody qualifies for the gospel. If any man hears my voice, if any person hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. Is that what the Bible says? All right. A few years ago, I realized that 1 Corinthians 13 was actually describing the character of God. How many times I've used 1 Corinthians 13 in a wedding sermon. I said, okay, young couple, if you want to make a happy, successful married life, you got to be like that. So work harder at it. And every time you find yourself failing in those principles, review those principles and be like that. You might as well tell an elephant to fly. It's like our parents used to say, be good. You can't be good. Some kids are agreeable. They're born with better dispositions than others. They can be somewhat good. They can be somewhat devious too. This isn't about us. Oh, yes, it makes a good model for us. This This is like a New Testament version of the Ten Commandments. This is the way we should live. But just like the Ten Commandments is hopelessly impossible unless Jesus is doing them inside of you, all this is hopelessly impossible unless Jesus is inside of you. But can I give you the positive side of that statement? If Jesus is living inside of you, this is natural. Are you with me? Because the love of Jesus just comes out, living God's love. Love is patient. Are you patient? Love is kind. Do you feel kind? Sometimes we don't even feel kind to church. Our toes got stepped on. Somebody didn't look right at us, or they acted a little bit disinterested in us today, and we want to be treated perfect at church, because where else would you expect to be treated perfectly? But at church, right? But at church, the people at church are just like you, waiting for you to treat them perfectly. Please, stop being so sensitive. You can't. It's like asking an elephant to fly. You've got to have Jesus in your heart. Really in your heart, or you're going to be sensitive. Your toes are going to get stepped on. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Oh, my goodness. Jealousy in the church. Oh, how often we see it. Oh. Love is not conceited or proud. And so we take this list and we think, oh, i got to be like that. Oh. I gotta work so hard at being like that. So we put it on the outside. We come to church. You know, I've done it so many times. You know why we wear ties? Because they choke us. And by choking us, they remind us to be quiet and smile. That's the whole purpose of ties, you know. That's why bank people wear them too. Be quiet and smile. Yeah. Because you want to be nice to everybody. We are not what we appear. 
because unless Jesus is living with that, within us, it's artificial. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. In other words, love is always being concerned about the other person's feelings, putting the other person first. That is impossible. God alone has that character. But here's the beautiful thing. This is the character of God. That's what this is describing. Just like we've known for a while the Ten Commandments describe the character of God, this is the New Testament version of the description of God's character. God is love. Love is not irritable. I was raised by a dad who was irritable. I imagine I was an irritable dad. I'm afraid to ask my son if that was the prevailing characteristic he thought about with me. (laughs) But I imagine I was irritable too. My dad was irritable. In other words, you never knew for sure what mood he was going to be in. And it was not hard to offend him. And he would get quite upset with you. And, you know, there were consequences and all that. God is not like that at all. But we pick up these views of God and we have the wrong view of God. And what I said earlier about our young people leaving, they're not leaving the truth about God. They're leaving a lie about God. Are you with me? We must show them the truth about God. Then if they still leave him, well, okay, they can. Judas did that. But not near so many of them would leave him if they saw the truth about God. Are we understanding this? He is not irritable. He does not keep a record of our wrongs. You say, wait a minute, I know he does. It's written down there in the books of heaven. Jesus does not do that. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Yes, it's true. Everything that ever happens in this universe is still happening out in space somewhere because it's all, (laughs) it's all visible. You know what I mean? And light travels at a certain speed and it's all there. You know, when God erases all of our sins, he's going to have a big job to do to change the laws of physics and get rid of all those images out in space. You know, if you could jump right now to a million miles away, you could see stuff you did last month with a telescope, right? You know that, don't you? You know something about physics, right? Astrophysics. You didn't know that? Oh, yeah. Everything that you've done under the light is being broadcast out to the space forever and ever. (laughs) So God's going to have some major things to do when he erases all of our sins. That's going to be wonderful when he can do that. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. Anyway. Love does not keep a record of our wrongs. See, God is in the business of erasing our sins. Hallelujah. That's the truth. But how many of us naturally remember those things and review them, sometimes in our minds and sometimes out loud? But I remember when this, and you said that, and you did this, and that. Oh, oh, friends, God is not like that. But yet we've, we, we, have, we have anthropomorphized him. We've turned him into one like ourselves. And we have thought that's the way he's relating to us. We naturally are going to be like the God that we worship. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up. Oh, I like that. Don't you like that? God is what? Love. So, let's change this word. God never gives up. Did you ever kneel and just plead with, oh, God, don't give up on me. Please, I'm so sorry, Lord. I blew it again. I, just, I, just, I don't know why. I didn't think I would. I, here I am. Don't give up on me. I won't give up on you. It's not in my nature to give up on you. I love you. I'm not about to give up on you. It's faith. It never gives up its hope. It never gives up its patience. Love never fails. Love is eternal. So God is someone you can totally count on to be your friend, no matter how rotten you've been. Am I exaggerating? I'm not exaggerating. 
You can count on God to be your friend. Jesus already died for you. He already died for you. You think he's going to let go after paying such a price? I remember when I bought a bag of oranges once. And oranges are pretty heavy and the bag wasn't that strong. And I get halfway across the parking lot and oranges start dropping out the bottom of my bag. Did that ever happen to you? Oranges are very uh, uh, spherical. And when they fall, they tend to roll. And so I watched them. The oranges were going under that car and under that car and over there and under that and ahead and behind me. But I had paid good money for those oranges. I quickly secured the ones I could secure, threw them into my trunk, and ran all over that parking lot rescuing the lost oranges. It's just like the parable of the sheep and the lost sheep. Because Jesus has already bought you. Amen? He's already bought you. He's already forgiven all your sins, even. It's just that he won't do that. He won't apply that to you forensically until you want him to. Because he's not going to force it on you. But he has already legally forgiven all your sins, even. I mean, you can't beat this, can you? That's love. You know, if my wife wants me to do that, I'm not so sure. I still have some things, you know. I don't lend her my car. Because I'm afraid that if she wrecked it, I wouldn't be able to forgive her. See, now, if I, if I was totally imbibed in the nature of God, which I am seeking that every day, believe me, it's growing, but, you know, I would know that I could forgive my wife, even if she did that, that I would have already forgiven her in advance. I would be saying as I handed her the key, quietly so I wouldn't embarrass her, you're already forgiven if you mess up my car. Wouldn't I? Yes, because that's the nature of God. I mean, folks, we've got to find him this way. Not that way. This way. This is who he wants to be to us. He says, I have called you servants, but from now on I'm calling you friends. Because servants don't really understand everything that the master is thinking, but I'm, I'm going to tell you everything I'm thinking. I'm not going to hide anything from you. Whoever keeps his word, God's love has most certainly been perfected in him. I love the way this particular version translates this. Whoever keeps his word. I used to read this totally backwards. I used to read it to say, whoever keeps God's commandments is now perfected in him. So if you keep his commandments well enough, you can have divine perfection. Absolutely backwards. What it really says is if you're perfected in Him, that's why you're now successful at keeping His commandments. In other words, if you're totally locked up in Jesus, you're totally secure in His love, you're in His arms, you're resting in His grace, you know Him every day as your best friend, you're walking with Him, you talk to Him all the time, you're listening to Him all the time, you are now able to keep His Word. I remember a story which I used to misinterpret from the experience of Ellen White. She didn't like bread. I mean, bread, what's not, to, what's not to like, right? Bread. She didn't like bread. My wife can't even fathom that. Bread's her favorite food. Literally, she makes great bread, too. Sorry she didn't bring any today, but we got, we got classy bread at home, okay? She makes great bread. Ellen White did not like bread. Hard to imagine. Anyway, she got the conviction somehow that she should like bread because bread was good for you, especially whole wheat bread and so forth. So, she determined 
that she was going to learn to like bread. And you know what she did to learn to like bread? Did anybody remember this story? Really? I thought this was a common story among Adventists. Well, anyway, she said to herself, you won't get another bite of anything until you have an appetite for bread. Whoa, what self-will and determination. Man, no wonder she was a good Adventist. So she's put herself on a famine, and sure enough, under after about three or four days, bread started sounding really good to her. And so her first meal was bread. And she broke her famine, her fast that way, and after that she liked bread. And I used to think, oh, wow, that's the way it's done. Well, that must be right. The Bible says, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, so you've got to really, really exercise that willpower. The only problem with it is, we're not all born with equal amounts of willpower. How many of you found that to be true? Yeah. Your kids. You have, you have several kids that they don't all have the same amount of willpower. Some have a lot, some have very little. And then we go through a lifetime messing up our willpower by violating our own, you know, our own best interests a lot of times. And we end up with really hardly any willpower at all. And then if you get into drugs and all that, well, forget it. There's no, you know, it's gone. The willpower is gone. So I thought, well, who can be saved then? Only people with willpower? I misunderstood that story altogether. Let me tell you the truth about that story. Ellen White was convicted by the Spirit that she needed a healthier diet, which included whole wheat bread. Ellen White, quite some time before that, had fallen in love with Jesus Christ and was daily walking with Him and communing with Him and rejoicing in His love and being healed by His love and held up and sustained by His love every moment. And so when that conviction came... She was secure in God's love. And with the conviction immediately came the ability to conquer the problem. Are you with me? So it wasn't conquering the problem that gave her a good place in God's heart. It was having a good place in God's heart that gave her the victory. I need a lot bigger victories than just enjoying bread. But I want to tell you, nothing is impossible in the love of God. Do not say to people anymore, there's power. Go to the Lord and ask Him for His power. He'll give you His power. He doesn't want to give you His power. He wants to give you Himself. We talk about victory here and victory there. Don't go to the Lord and ask Him for victory. He's not want to give you some victory. Go around in heaven and say, oh, I asked for victory, and now I'm the most victorious champion in God's army. No! He wants to give you Himself. So that when you get to heaven and people say, well, how'd you win the victory? You'll say, I didn't win any victory. Jesus loved me into ethical and moral health. I should hear some amens on that, folks. That's, that's the truth. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. I mean, I, I'm not, these are not just theories to me. This is the experience that I'm having. I am not perfect by any means. And the reason why is because I'm still growing in the love of Christ. Do I expect to be perfect? Absolutely, because I expect to grow up fully into the maturity of the love of Jesus Christ. I'm no longer working on individual victories here, there, 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 unless the Holy Spirit says, okay, right now I want you to work on this one. And I said, no. And he said, 
I'm going to do this for you if you say yes. Oh, all right. As long as you'll do it for me, I'm in. Heal me. Change my heart. You know what he does mostly? When you have had a wrong attitude about anything, either plus or minus, you want something you shouldn't have or you don't want something you should have. Wrong attitude about anything. His love comes in and heals whatever the psychological issue is there. Because there's always a psychological issue that makes you not either love something you shouldn't or not love something you should. There always is. And his love just comes in and heals it. That's what it does. And so pretty soon you find that what would have been a very difficult decision for you to make is not difficult at all now. You still have to make the decision, but it's, not, it's, no, it's no longer difficult. It's no longer difficult at all. It's like, oh, why did I ever think that was a hard decision to make? It didn't seem hard. If you haven't had this experience, I pray God you start having it immediately. Don't start, though, from, oh, I've got to have the victory. Okay, how can I get into Jesus deep enough to have the victory? No, 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 no. Start with, I need to get into Jesus. I'm going to let him tell me what victories to have I need and, what, and in what order. I'm going to get into Jesus' love and live securely in his love, knowing that he has saved me by his grace and that I am his child and that he will never abandon me. That's what I'm going to get. And then I'm going to let him heal me. Are you with me? Are you? Oh, hallelujah. This is it, folks. This is what he is offering us. Maybe in 10 years I'll have a picture that describes it even better. But right now, that one works for me right now. I really see that he is the only hope, but praise God, there is nothing he can't achieve. So when we say he's the only hope, that almost sounds like, well, that's, you know, we might make it, we might not. No, with him as our hope, we cannot fail. Are you with me? We cannot fail. Now, this afternoon, I want to talk to you about abiding in Christ. How do I get on and stay on this in this connection with Christ? You want to know that, don't you? you it, it's not hard at all. It's not, it's so easy, it's, it's unbelievable. But I, I really want you to know it because I didn't know it. I didn't know what, I, I did not know the simple process of abiding in Christ. I thought, that must be something you do just before Jesus appears in the clouds, you know. That must be the final stamp of, 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 of perfection. I didn't realize that was our daily experience every day as a, as, as, as a real Christian. And, and so I, I really want to share that with you this afternoon. I hope you can come back. Father in heaven. This is true. I can see it in the, in the eyes and faces of these precious friends here today. You have convinced us that you are willing to receive us, that you are ready to hear us, that you're ready to enter our hearts, that nothing can hold you back if we just give the word. You have already committed yourself fully to us, and we want you. We realize that you alone are our strength. We don't want you to give us any strength. We might take pride in it, Lord. We want you to give us yourself. Be our strength. Let us rejoice in our relationship with you and find everything we need in that relationship. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.